Franklin Covey's weekly podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. I am privileged each week after five years and nearly 300 episodes to still be sitting in this privileged position interviewing some of the world's greatest minds and influencers, business titans, military officers, best-selling book authors. It's been an amazing journey, nearly 300 interviews, all designed with the same end in mind, and that is to perpetuate the legacy of our founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, and the hundreds of millions of lives that he and our company, Franklin Covey, have changed through bringing to our customers around the world insights on how to be a better leader, a leader in your organization, a leader in your faith community, a leader in your local community, or even a leader in your family. And we don't claim to have all the expertise, which is why, in the spirit of Dr. Stephen R. Covey, we like to have an abundance mentality and bring insights to our listeners and viewers around the world from people who complement the point of view we have around leadership. I'm also the author of a series based on this podcast called Master Mentors from HarperCollins, where each year I publish a new volume, 10 volumes planned in the, in the series, where with the permission of 30 of my most influential guests, I write a chapter about a single transformational insight they shared either on or off the podcast in the hopes to bring you a better connection to their work and to their journey. And today's guest hopefully might even be featured in a future Master Mentor series. His name is T.D. Jakes. He's known to billions around the world as Bishop Jakes. He is one of the most abundant, positive healers, unifiers, visionaries in our world today. He's joining us to talk about his newest release. The book is called Disruptive Thinking, a daring strategy to change how we live, lead, and love. Bishop Jakes, welcome to On Leadership. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure uh, to be joining you today and to uh, talk to your audience. Bishop it's an absolute pleasure uh, to be joining you today and to uh, talk to your audience. Bishop Jakes, the honor is completely ours. We love to shine our spotlight on visionaries like you. And in fact, this isn't your first uh, Franklin Covey Association. I understand that you and Dr. Covey's son, Stephen M. R. Covey, who wrote the book, The Speed of Trust, have shared a stage a few times as well. Absolutely. I'm a big fan of him and, and the book. <laughs> and he of yours as well. Bishop Jakes, again, it's an honor to have you today. In our next 35 minutes, I want to go quick around a couple of concepts that you've written about in disruptive thinking. For those last few human beings that may be off the grid, would you take a few minutes and reorient them to your journey, to the platform you've been privileged to build, to change lives of people? Talk a bit about your history as an entrepreneur, as a musician, as a preacher, and really as a great human being. Well, <clears throat> thank you. It's been quite a journey. I was born in West Virginia, in the hills of West Virginia. Uh, grew up there and spent most of my life there. Started ministering there uh, as a pastor and then later transitioned to Dallas, Texas, became the pastor of the Powders House. Uh, before doing so, I started a company called T.D. Jakes Enterprises, uh, which is a social impact corporation that is developed to aggregate content and to have impact on the culture in various ways uh, for transitioning, transformation, uh, helping them to achieve their practical goals like entrepreneurship, better life skills, 
better opportunities. And it is a global brand. So we've done things uh, around the world, particularly in Australia, Africa, France, the UK, um, Ukraine, so forth and so on. About 30 million people on our social media database. And we have a weekly and a daily broadcast a daily, that broadcasts around the country through various Christian outlets. And I appear quite a bit on business platforms with Dr. Phil, Oprah, and others. But I saw you on Dr. Phil just this week talking about this book, and I'm going to revisit some of the questions that you talked about. I want to dive right into the book. The title is called Disruptive Thinking, and you share a paragraph that I want you to unpack. You say, you can't be a disruptive thinker while trying to negotiate peace settlements with people who want to define you by their description of you. Further, you say, everyone who met me as a musician struggled to see me as a minister. Everyone who met me as a minister struggled to see me as an entrepreneur. Their, side, their snide remarks were born out of their discomfort with my mobility. Riff on that. I think that people draw a certain, amount of, a certain amount of comfort by being able to describe you in the most simplistic terms. And most of us are really complicated people. And so when you use simplistic terms to define complicated people, you incarcerate them within the title and the way in which you describe them. And there has to be a certain courage and a courageous attitude that enables you uh, not to be defined by how people met you because their point of view, their perspective is based on the way in which they see you. But you're a multifaceted human being. And to enjoy the luxury of having God put a comma where other put a others put a period becomes a catalyst for disruptive thinking so that you don't have to choose between this or that. You can be this and that. You can be a mother and a, a business owner. You can be a pastor and an entrepreneur. You can be an artist and be a lawyer. And so according to the talents that are invested in you uh, to defy the temptation to be so concerned about disappointing people's definition that you don't explore your own destiny. A mutual friend of ours, I'm sure, is Stedman Graham, the entrepreneur yes. and philanthropist. And we've had Stedman on uh, several times. We've been friends for several years. And Stedman, as you know, is a passionate expert around the idea of identity. And, yes. and, and what he says about that is most of us live our lives fulfilling the identity someone else placed upon us our school right. principal, our parents, our neighbors. And instead, Stedman says, no, 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 no. Go define the identity that's right for you. And in many ways, you're saying the same thing. You open your book talking about how most of us are raised to fit in, to not stand right. out, to not right. stand up. And you write, Bishop, however, there is a hidden truth embedded inside this phenomenon. The people who are written into the history books, who make the Hall of Fame, who unearth world-changing discoveries, who become the exceptional among us are not the ones who fit in. They are the disruptors who decided they no longer cared about fitting in. They were seeking something else. They were determined to seek something more important than being accepted. Expand on that. Well, you know, when you think about people like uh, 
Mahatma Gandhi, when you start thinking about Ronald Reagan, when you start thinking about uh, him confronting Mikhail Gorbachev to tear down the wall, that's disruptive. It was a disruptive idea. It tore up a norm, but it also made history. When you look at uh, people like Fannie uh, Mae Hammer and you start, Hamer, and you start to understand the people who changed the world, the Nelson Mandela's, uh, and so forth and et cetera, the list goes on and on and on, Maya Angelou, whatever, they they all were disruptive and they took the hit to be authentic. And there is a hit and there is a moment of criticism and there is a moment of controversy. And you have to be strong enough to take that hit to transform into the broader expression of yourself and to totally embrace that and redefine what normal is. And if you are worried about fitting in, then you can't stand out. And if you fit in, uh, you won't change the world. You won't always be satisfied and you won't complete the journey uh, if you are at your core, a disruptive thinker. One of the great quotes I love in your book is you write, disruptors don't take sides, they take over. And although you don't wade into the politics of this gentleman, you're a self-confessed Tesla owner, I believe, but you share a great story about how Elon Musk, as an entrepreneur, didn't take sides, he took over. Would you maybe retell that story? Because I found it to be a fascinating point of view from yourself, an entrepreneur, about how not to get mired in the argument, but to use that for momentum. Well, there are all these systems in business. Uh, the automobile, automobile industry has a system. <clears throat> what fascinated me about him is that he built outside of the system, was locked out of the system in some regards, and still introduced something that was disruptive. The notion of an electric car had been discussed, had been played with several times, had never really been fully uh, unlocked. Uh, that kind of disruptive uh, ability to step into a system that has locked you out and, and break in with a disruptive idea and stay so long that it can't be ignored. At first, they try to block you. Uh, they try to stop you. And then they try to imitate you. And you have to be prepared to understand that this is a process that any system does when you're a foreigner born outside of their permission and you have to break in. Uh, so when you talk about Elon Musk, that's one area where he actually, I thought, shined in as a disruptive thinker. Uh, you're right, I'm not political and I don't agree or embrace everything about him. But that one aspect becomes a lesson for us to have the courage to do something that doesn't fit in the system, that may be rejected by the system and then later imitated by the system if you have the courage to be a disruptive thinker. Bishop Jakes, there is no shortage of thought leaders opining on the importance of your thought processes, your belief systems. Our co-founder, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, became influential talking about paradigms and how you can have a paradigm shift. He didn't invent that word, but I think it's fair to say he popularized it. The title of this recent release is called Disruptive Thinking. Can you build a bridge from me, for me and for millions of people listening and watching around the world to say, okay, I know that my thoughts matter. I know that sometimes my brain lies to me. I know that my thoughts drive what I do and what I do drives the results I get, but it's easier said than it is implemented. 
Can you give us some practical, immediate tips on how to disrupt current negative thinking, limiting thinking, and rewire our brains, rewire our mindsets to realize that we can change our thinking. It's not just something Bishop Jakes wrote about in a book. I can do that today in my life. You know, for, thank you for the question. It's a great question. And indeed, it's something that we have to continue to practice on an ongoing basis. The, we're losing empathy as a society, which is the conduit through which you broaden your perspective. You broaden your perspective when you think about the narrative from the other person's side of the story. Your report is based on the side of the elephant you see. My report is based on the side of the elephant I see. Neither one of us have to be wrong. It's just broadening our perspective to understand a more panoramic view causes both of us to walk away wiser and more holistic in our understanding. And it starts with little things. If we can give up the egotistical need to always know everything, then we become available with the bandwidth to learn something new. And learning something new doesn't mean that everything you knew before was wrong. It may be that it was true based on your point of view. This is why we diversify boards, diversify them in terms of not all lawyers, not all accountants, not all doctors, so that we have a diverse confluence of ideas, not old people, not all young people, not all black, white, or brown people. Diversity is more than a cliche for the times. It is a wise business decision that has resorted in 20 to 30% increases in the marketplace because you have diverse ideas. Now, the same thing that's true in the boardroom is true in the boardroom of your own head. Allowing a, 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 the narrative that you tell yourself programs the way you think. When you broaden that narrative, it broadens the way in which you think. So you're not just defending your point and your perspective against the enemy of somebody who has a different point or perspective, but you are coalescing them together to have a panoramic view that causes your outcome to be more fair, more complete, more informed, and more investable. So if you're building a business and you're only building it around people who are four foot two, don't expect a lot of customers, okay? The broader you build the business or write the book or build the brand to be inclusive of people who are different from you, in the process of doing that, you encounter them, you learn from them, you grow from them, you, you get different perspectives and you, you stop being so arrogant as to think that your world is the world. It's just a world. It's not the world. And if you're going to shake the world, then you have to have more points of view than your own. Bishop, today I'm broadcasting this podcast with you from Salt Lake City, Utah, where Franklin Covey, the leadership firm, is based. Uh, there is a local political commentator who's fairly nonpartisan, fairly famous here in Utah. His name is Boyd Matheson. He has a daily radio program. And he's, I would say he's very ecumenical across the aisle, so to speak. He's writing and releasing a book coming out next year called From Rage to Reason. And what he really argues is that we're not as polarized as we think we are as a nation. That the right and the left, the extremes, how they entrench their positions is convincing everybody how polarized we are. He says we're actually a lot closer on most issues than they'll lead us to believe we aren't. Do you agree with that? Completely. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. 
that we, we walk in and out of grocery stores together. We want the same thing for our children. We want a better life. We want upward mobility. But normal doesn't get the microphone. <laughs> Extremes get the microphone, which drives the narrative, which creates the illusion that we are all pitted against each other when, in fact, most of us are trying to survive. Most of us will let one another in and out of traffic. Most of us will help an old lady across the street. Most of us are like that. The extreme parameters, however, get the time because they drive the ratings. And so when they drive the ratings, they get the time. And little by little, we are morphed in believing that what is meant supposedly to be news more often is entertainment becomes a place where we draw to get a picture of what's going on in the world, when in fact it's really a picture of what's going on on the network. When you combine that with algorithms, which are feeding you whatever you're searching for, the, after the search is over, they're still feeding you more and more data. It reinforces a notion that is a perspective, but is not a global view of a perspective. And so I think that you cannot heal what you don't understand. That goes all the way down to marriage understanding somebody who is different from you is what makes a marriage work or not work, not changing them. It's understanding them. From your lips to my marriage, your, sir, uh, of the many roles in your life, one of them is entrepreneur. And you write in the book very forcefully that there's a connection between social justice and entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. You are focused on, one of, the, one of your focuses on education. Uh, mm -hmm. making people take responsibility for their situation and changing it. And you're a passionate mm -hmm. advocate about the connection between job growth and skill and education and, and, and maybe bridging the divide, this massive divide between the haves and the have-nots. Talk about the connection between social justice and entrepreneurship. Well, social justice was the next step that uh, uh, civil rights was the next step of civil rights. And uh, Dr. King, unfortunately, got shot when he started talking about civil, silver, silver rights, uh, not just civil rights. It's impossible to complete civil rights without civil rights. When you have, uh, I'm not talking about being rich. I'm talking about being stable. Marriages last longer. Relationships are stronger. Homes are more uh, astute. You can send your kids you can send school, you get better health care when you have better resources. It affects every aspect of our society. Eating healthy is expensive. When you begin to understand the diverse things that equity changes, we're after equality, but if we don't pursue equity, we won't have full equality. Equity doesn't mean I have to take from you in order to get better. My coming up doesn't bring you down. Your killing me doesn't make you king. So understanding that we can share the air together does not mean I've got my foot on your air hose. And so when we stop being threatened by other people rising up uh, economically and understand that when our workforce increases, when our diversity increases, when our neighborhoods are safer, when we have worked to blot out the possibilities of murders, killings, and mayhems, we live in a more equitable society. It is good for us to have a middle class. I am concerned about black, brown, and white people who are falling out of the middle class ranks in part because we have stopped producing as much as we used to produce. 
So industry has turned to technology. Technology is a narrower market of intelligence, which may mean that we have to educate our children differently than traditional education in order for them to code, program, and be uh, marketable in a contemporary society that is ever evolving. One final thing, our, our laws haven't caught up with our technology. Our way of education hasn't caught up with our technology. Our demand for technology and people who are good at science, technology, engineering, and math is increasing at rapid proportions. And I, unfortunately, I happen to represent a sector of the community who was already at a digital divide. And now the divide is increasing exponentially. And it's not just a black, white, or brown issue. It's a red, white, and blue issue. And when we become concerned about each other, it provokes a mighty change. Bishop Jakes, you have a large platform. Socially, radio, television, literary, you are a prolific writer. Whenever you write a book, you sell millions of copies. You have a big footprint, literally, because you're a tall man, but also metaphorically. Why this book and why now? Of all the topics you could have released in 2023, why was disruptive thinking what you wanted to talk about? I guess because we just came out of the pandemic. Uh, as a faith leader, you had to be disruptive in your thinking or you would have drowned. It was like Noah's flood, <laughs> you know, uh, all the conditions changed. We actually drew more people with our doors closed than we did open. Uh, because we were disruptive in our thinking and how we approached it. We were disruptive in how we brought our family together and how we approached it. And I started to realize we're living in the middle of a global disruption, unlike anything we've seen in the last 100 years. And I realized that uh, as, as, as we watch uh, the whole country all around the world singing out of windows, looking out of doors. It was like something in a, in a sci-fi movie, and it was a reality. How are we going to think about that? Since normal is gone, since companies are putting in restaurants that are not manned by humans, since we're checking in our bags to machines, since we're getting our, our groceries through robots, since normal is gone, how do we need to be thinking to prepare our society, maintain our marriages, build our churches, build our businesses, build our company in a society where the floor is literally turning while you're standing on it. The art of being in Broadway is to be able to dance on a stage that is turning. That's what disruptive thinking is. When we opened this interview, I talked about the, the intro of your book. You talked about how it's counterintuitive everything most of us are raised to believe early on in life is to fit in, look the same, don't stand out, comply. And you're kind of arguing that it's not helpful, that the people who change the world, the people who have the microphone, are those that have the courage, the stamina to look different, sound different, say what they will, and maybe face the consequences. For the people who are listening today, whether they're in a marriage that they're struggling in, a job, an organization, a community, you argue a lot about basically pick yourself up because you can be poor anywhere, so move over to a different community. What would you say to give people courage to be more disruptive? You know, 
I'm glad you brought it from the lofty heights of, of people from the pinnacles who change the world to people who are on the mainstream who just need to change the furniture in their living room. Everybody has to develop a certain degree of disruption in order to experience growth. When I put a seed in the ground, it disrupts the soil or it dies in the ground. Growth and disruption are synonymous, one with the other, from the perspective that we have to understand that you have to leave your spouse room to grow, to evolve, to become. They're not going to be the same person that they were 20 years ago. They're not going to be the same person that they become 20 years from now. And so the art of marriage is to be able to dance on a moving floor and, and go through menopause together, midlife together, got a new job, lost a job, upsizing, downsetting. Pregnant, not pregnant, lost parents, didn't lose parents. Life is always like longest, breathing in and out. And your ability to get that rhythm and be able to function there is important. One final thing. If you have a little child and they won't color in the lines, hand them a blank sheet of paper. You may be raising an architect. When you force people to comply with lines that they didn't build, you incarcerate them behind your ideas. And I'm saying that everything that passes for a bad child is not a bad child. It may be that they are creative in another way and understanding disruptive people makes you able to either be one or support one. Bishop, um, part of who you are is how you were raised. And I was riveted reading the section of your book about your father's health. Uh, yes. I read it twice because I was visualizing. I was visualizing the stairs and the handle. I was visualizing the dialysis machine. Would you, would you retell that story? Because wow. I was raised different than you. I was yes. raised in a, in a family with a more, although you, your, your family, you, you liken them to the Jeffersons because you were moving on up. Your dad was a successful entrepreneur. Will you talk about the impact your father's health and the moment on the stairs had outside your front porch, what that meant from you and your dad's, your dad, who your dad was, who your dad became, and there was an inflection point there where your dad was giving up and what you needed from him. Take your time yes. to retell that story, please. Oh my gosh, uh, that's uh, hard to do. That was difficult to write because it was so personal. It was beautiful. Thank you for showing the vulnerability. I read it twice, sir. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, uh, when I wrote it, I cried uh, I, because it is a memory. Your movie is my memory. And I can still see my father who was like the Hulk to me at 280 pounds and five foot 11 and a barrel chested, robust, big, strong, muscle bound individual who had come from a background of playing football and was offered an opportunity to go pro. Uh, so after I grew up watching him lift cars up from the side of the road, stuck in the snow and tell him to hit the gas and they hit the road again. I mean, he could literally lift up the back end of the car. He was, he was a strong man. He went from that workaholic working all the time, not really taking care of himself, uh, to kidney failure, uh, hypertension, uh, got sick and I was raised by a dying father. Being raised by a dying father changes your life. And in the book, I talk about a moment where we had something went wrong with the kidney machine that we later had in our house and we had to rush him to the hospital. My father was so tired of being sick. By then he was 130 pounds. The, the muscles on his leg had turned to skin and bone, flapping in the wind. His hands were weak and trembling. 
when we got to the to the edge of the front porch where the wrought iron railing was, he gripped the wrought iron railing as hard as he could and started crying and said, please let me die. And I'm a little boy watching my father beg to die with his arms, with his fingers stuck through the wrought iron railing. Uh, it is forever etched into my brain. He was just tired of the pain, tired of suffering. Uh, renal failure had not come as far back then as it has now. And it was very, very difficult and very, very painful. Uh, to be raised by somebody who's dying, we got him, finally got his fingers pried loose. I'm literally prying my father's hands loose, crying, trying to get him to, to fight to live a life that had been demeaning, degrading, demoralizing, uh, demasculating him. Uh, but I needed him to be here because he was my father. And, and he had the key to me understanding myself as a man. So uh, I, I, I started the book from that perspective, telling that story, because I'm telling them that I was raised in an atmosphere of disruption. So even though disruption can be painful, disruption can be distraught, it is not unfamiliar to me to have to grow in the midst of disruption. And that has been a very painful but helpful tool in helping me to deal with the stress of advancements and setbacks and emergencies and crisis, disappointments and death and life and all the things that we all inevitably experience somewhere in your life and your childhood was a tutorial moment that helped you to survive the moment that you have as a grown man or woman. Bishop, I'm gonna read this passage from the book. As we moved outside and onto the front porch, my father grabbed hold of the wrought iron railing and wouldn't let go. He didn't want to go to the hospital. Quote, please let me die, he said in his weak voice, pleading, quote, please let me die. I was a child hearing my father say he wanted to die. He didn't want to fight anymore. He didn't want to be helpless anymore. Further on, you read, you write, I dropped everything from my arms and I leaped forward toward his fingers. One by one, I pried his fingers from the railing as he cried and protested. I didn't say it, but one devastating thought dropped into my head. Live for me, Dad. Live for me. Now, there are many millions of people who are experiencing loneliness and distraught, financial pressures, suicidal tendencies, Life is overwhelming them. Your book isn't necessarily about people in that situation, but as a pastor, as a father, as a husband, as a friend, what will you say to people who right now want to give up? They feel like the pressures of life are too big, and they have children who are thinking, live for me, mom, live for me, dad. What would you say to those people in a different situation than that of your father? I would encourage them to fight the good fight of faith. Uh, I know that's hard. I literally know, my mother died of Alzheimer's. I literally know how hard it is to fight when your body's fighting you. I know what it is to be nauseated every day around the clock. I know what it is. I know the grit and grim of sickness. It's dressed up on TV, but in real life, it plays out in a very um, sensual way. Sensual being feelings, smellings, seeing things that will forever burn into your head. 
But if for every reason, whether it's sickness or poverty or divorce or disappointment or rejection, you feel like giving up today, remember it is your past that makes you want to die, but dying will not kill it. Dying will kill your future and your future is where your hope is. The, what you kill when you let go and die it's a possibility of seeing your children grow, of being at their weddings or their graduations, or being there for them when everybody else throws them away. What you kill is the possibility that this works out tomorrow, that, you go, that you're gonna meet somebody later that wipes away all the pain of what you went through. When you let go and give up and want to die, it's generally the past. But what you kill, it's the future. Thank you, sir. On a lighter note, you had something cool cooking with Wells Fargo. Talk about that. I'm really excited. I don't know how I got here. I have been doing real estate development uh, for some time. People don't see it. We didn't broadcast it. We weren't hiding it. It's just that on the network. I'm on that that is not the nature of the show. So people only know you from what they see you doing. But I've been doing real estate for a couple of decades or more. Uh, properties around my house, properties around my church, properties in my city, uh, trying to transition them to create better outcomes in underserved communities. We ended up developing a business called TD Jake's Real Estate Ventures uh, that is focused on uh, mixed income, mixed use community development in underserved areas so that they can be more productive and more beneficial to our society. Also, so that teachers can afford to live in, in or near the cities they work at, so that police officers and firemen who do hard work and are often underpaid can have a, a chance at upward mobility and have grocery stores in their neighborhood and, 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 and quality of care around them. I think it can be done. When Wells Fargo saw what we did and what we were doing, we talked to several banks, but when Wells Fargo saw what we did and saw what we were doing, they wanted to come alongside of us and eventually we negotiated a uh, $1 billion over 10 year deal, which is non-recourse and recourse capital, non-recourse capital to our foundation, through which we are able to do financial literacy, wraparound services for underserved communities, mental health awareness for underserved communities, as well as responding to pathways to employment through a plethora of different employers around the country. We want to be a conduit for that and to continue the work that our Texas Offenders Reentry Initiative and its 30,000 students that have gone through the reentry program, getting them jobs, getting them situated, doing anger management classes, helping them to assimilate back into society. The foundation now takes that to the next level. Wells Fargo coming along to stand beside us helps us to fuel that and to energize that which we have often sustained through our own resources. The other part of it is the real estate component, which is not on the mortgage side of it, it's on the building side of it. 
enabling us to get the contractors that we need to do infrastructure for large swaths of land, put in plumbing, put in uh, electricity, put in uh, G5 uh, equipment, put in the latest technology that provides an opportunity for underserved communities to have access to Wi-Fi, access to clean air and food and fuel in a mixed income environment, as opposed to a low income environment, which was tried in the 60s and 70s and has not had great outcomes. Society teaches us, stats teach us that mixed income communities have the greatest impact on individuals. And so uh, Wells Fargo came along with this amazing uh, concept that we worked on and worked on, how they could help to capitalize some of our projects from a development stage, not from a retail stage, but from a development stage to uh, put that infrastructure in, build those buildings, build those hotels, build those grocery stores and develop a community so that when people come back to buy houses, they don't have to leave their culture, their friends, or their zip code in order to get to the grocery store. Congratulations on that, and congrats to Wells Fargo for being a great partner with you. Uh, I'm mindful of our time. I have a couple last questions, and we'll let you go. I know you're on a nationwide tour for your work right now. I saw you on Dr. Phil recently. I don't typically watch that, but I was watching this episode because you were on it, mobile. And you talked about how important it is to maybe edit people from your life. That's not the word you use, but you talked about how there are people that should be in your life as, as givers and those who are takers. I think you talk about the people that need you versus yes. people that help you. Will you reiterate that concept? Because I thought it was profound. Uh, thank you. Uh, I talk about if you have a moment to sit down and take a sheet of paper and write down all the people who need you, the list will be quite long whether it's children, spouses, uh, co-workers, employers, employees, the list is long of people who need us. Our, the family we grew up in, our parents, different friends who need us, need will always be there. On the other sheet of paper, write down the people who feed you, that when you get around them, they illuminate you, they educate you, they inspire you, they encourage you, they challenge you, they criticize you, they critique you, but they feed you. If the list is longer of the people who need you than the people who feed you, you have to be intentional about bringing more people into your life who feed you, lest the people who need you leave you emotionally, mentally, and creatively bankrupt. I talk about how important it is to have a balanced life. It's not always about spas and candles and steam rooms and massages. It can be about balancing your life with feed and need collaboratively occupying the same space without dominating the same space, and that space is you. Bishop, I think a lot of people find it difficult to be optimistic and positive right now, whether it be, and as Americans gearing up for an epic political battle in the next, you know, 19 months, whether it be in the U.S. near daily mass shootings, we're numb to it whether it is the vitriol coming from leaders or business CEOs and political leaders that we see in Florida, whether it's the pandemic, whether it's inflation, what's going on in Russia, it's a tough time to be positive. What are you positive about? What are you realistically encouraged about? I am positive about the paradigm shift, to use that word, paradigm shift that I see happening where there are certain corporations that are rising up. 
uh, to do things that we normally look to the government to do, that they're, they're concerned not just about their stockholders, but their shareholders. They're developing programs that are reaching out to communities. A lot of them have made pledges and not fail, have not followed through on them, but some of them are really following through on them. I think that's encouraging. Now, I don't want to be Pollyanna in the room. There is much that is discouraging. There is much that is troubling. This is a disruptive, uh, tumultuous time uh, here in our country and around the world. And there's lots of opportunities to be bleak. But I believe that there are more good people than there are those who take the mic, that the extremists get the attention. But most of us are in middle America, caring about bread and butter issues, wanting to make government more tangible and touchable. I want to remind people that local government probably affects you much more than federal government. And yet federal government government gets all of our tips. We have to think differently about the world. And if you are uh, distraught, as I sometimes am when I watch too much news, take a, take a news break. Back away from the vitriol and the, the way that politics has become, because it can get in your spirit and become depressive. Stay attuned enough to understand what's going on, but stay far removed enough to understand that your world survived all kinds of administrations. Your house survived Democrats, it survived Republicans, it survived liberals, it survived conservatives, it survived leaders you liked, it survived people you didn't like. So don't strain about it. Let's work on the things we can control. Our power to vote, our power to change, our power to transform our communities and our lives and ourselves. You are the CEO of you. And so if you start with what you can govern, and then vote for what you can't govern. Action is therapeutical. At least I did something about it. And so while we engage in the political process, we don't want to drown in it. Let's start engaging in the things that we have the power to change. And finally, when someone reads disruptive thinking, how will they be changed? How do you hope they'll be different? I think that it will be like the hot sun. It depends on the clay that ingested what it will do. If it's clay, it will harden. If it's wax, it will melt. If you are secretly disruptive and you didn't know how to cultivate it or you needed the encouragement or to understand what to expect, then it's going to be a great book for you. If you are not a disruptor, it will help you to identify people in your life that are disruptive and how you can better support them and better understand what it's like to be them. Bishop Jakes, you are a class act. Uh, our world is better because of you and those that inspire you and focus your thinking as well. We're honored that you joined us today on our podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's a real pleasure. I appreciate it. And we'll see you back here next week for a new guest, new conversation on leadership.